0: Chapter 38, Part 5 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In a century of perpetual, or at least implacable war, much courage and some skill must have been exerted for the defense of Britain. Yet, if the memory of its champions is almost buried in oblivion, we need not repine, since every age, however destitute of science or virtue, sufficiently abounds in acts of blood and military renown. The tomb of Vortimer, the son of Vortigern, was erected on the margin of the seashore, as a landmark formidable to the Saxons, whom he had thrice vanquished in the fields of Kent. Ambrosius Aurelian was descended from a noble family of Romans. His modesty was equal to his valor, and his valor, till the last fatal action was crowned with splendid success. But every British name is effaced by the illustrious name of Arthur, the hereditary prince of the Celeres in South Wales, and the elective king or general of the nation. According to the most rational account, he defeated, in twelve successive battles, the Angles of the North and the Saxons of the West. But the declining age of the hero was embittered by popular ingratitude and domestic misfortunes the events of his life are less interesting than the singular revolutions of his fame. During a period of five hundred years, the tradition of his exploits was preserved and rudely embellished by the obscure bards of Wales and Amorica, who were odious to the Saxons and unknown to the rest of mankind. The pride and curiosity of the Norman conquerors prompted them to inquire into the ancient history of Britain. They listened with fond credulity to the tale of Arthur and eagerly applauded the merit of a prince who had triumphed over the Saxons, their common enemies. His romance, transcribed in the Latin of Geoffrey of Monmouth, and afterwards translated into the fashionable idiom of the times, was enriched with the various, though incoherent, ornaments which were familiar to the experience, the learning, or the fancy of the twelfth century. The progress of a Phrygian colony, from the Tiber to the Thames, was easily engrafted onto the fable of the Aeneid and the royal ancestors of Arthur derived their origin from Troy, and claimed their alliance with the Caesars. His trophies were decorated with the captive provinces and imperial titles, and his Danish victories avenged the recent injuries of his country. The gallantry and superstition of the British hero, his feasts and tournaments, and the memorable institution of his Knights of the Round Table, were faithfully copied from the reigning manners of chivalry, and the fabulous exploits of Uther's son, Appear less incredible than the adventures which were achieved by the enterprising valor of the Normans. Pilgrimage and the holy wars introduced into Europe the specious miracles of Arabian magic. Fairies and giants, flying dragons, and enchanted palaces were blended with the more simple fictions of the West, and the fate of Britain depended on the art or the predictions of Merlin. Every nation embraced and adorned the popular romance of Arthur and the knights of the Round Table. Their names were celebrated in Greece and Italy, and the voluminous tales of Sir Lancelot and Sir Tristram were devoutly studied by the princes and nobles who disregarded the genuine heroes and historians of antiquity. At length the light of science and reason was rekindled, the talisman was broken, the visionary fabric melted into air, and by a natural, though unjust, reverse of the popular opinion, the severity of the present age is inclined to question the existence of Arthur. Resistance, if it cannot avert, must increase the miseries of conquest, and conquest has never appeared more dreadful and destructive than in the hands of the Saxons, who hated the valor of their enemies, disdained the faith of treaties, and violated without remorse the most sacred objects of the Christian worship. The fields of battle might be traced, almost in every district, by monuments of bones, and the fragments of falling towers were stained with blood." The last of the Britons, without distinction of age or sex, was massacred in the ruins of Andorita, and the repetition of such calamities was frequent and familiar under the Saxon heptarchy. The arts and religion, the laws and language which the Romans had so carefully planted in Britain, were extirpated by the barbarous successors. After the destruction of the principal churches, the bishops, who had declined the crown of martyrdom, retired with the holy relics into Wales and Amorica and the remains of their flocks were left destitute of any spiritual food. The practice, and even the remembrance of Christianity, were abolished, and the British clergy might obtain some comfort from the damnation of the idolatrous strangers. The kings of France maintained the privileges of the Roman subjects, but the ferocious Saxons trampled on the laws of Rome and of the emperors. The proceedings of civil and criminal jurisprudence, the titles of honor, the forms of office, the ranks of society, and even the domestic rites of marriage, testament, and inheritance were finally suppressed, and the indiscriminate crowd of noble and plebeian slaves were governed by the traditionary customs which had been coarsely framed for the shepherds and pirates of Germany. The language of science, of business, and of conversation, which had been introduced by the Romans, was lost in the general desolation. A sufficient number of Latin or Celtic words might be assumed by the barbarians to express their new wants and ideas, but those illiterate pagans preserved and established the use of their national dialect. Almost every name, conspicuous either in church or state, reveals its Teutonic origin, and the geography of England was universally inscribed with foreign characters and appellations. The example of a revolution so rapid and so complete may not easily be found, but it will excite a probable suspicion that the arts of Rome, were less deeply rooted in Britain than in Gaul or Spain, and that the native rudeness of the country and its inhabitants was covered by a thin varnish of Italian manners. This strange alteration has persuaded historians, and even philosophers, that the provincials of Britain were totally exterminated, and that the vacant land was again peopled by the perpetual influx and rapid increase of the German colonies. 300,000 Saxons are said to have obeyed the summons of Hengist. The entire emigration of the Angles was attested, in the age of Bede, by the solitude of their native country. And our experience has shown the free propagation of the human race, if they are cast on a fruitful wilderness, where their steps are unconfined, and their subsistence is plentiful. The Saxon kingdoms displayed the face of recent discovery and cultivation. The towns were small, the villages were distant the husbandry was languid and unskillful. Four sheep were equivalent to an acre of the best land. An ample space of wood and morass was resigned to the vague dominion of nature, and the modern bishopric of Durham, and the whole territory from the Tyne to the Tees, had returned to its primitive state of a savage and solitary forest. Such imperfect population might have been supplied in some generations by the English colonies, but neither reason nor fact could justify the unnatural supposition that the Saxons of Britain remained alone in the desert which they had subdued. After the sanguinary barbarians had secured their dominion and gratified the revenge, it was their interest to preserve the peasants, as well as the cattle of the unresisting country. In each successive revolution the patient herd becomes the property of its new masters, and the salutary compact of food and labor is silently ratified by their mutual necessities. Wilfred, the Apostle of Sussex, accepted from his royal convert the gift of the peninsula of Celsi, near Kirkchester, with the persons and property of its inhabitants, who then amounted to 87 families. He released them at once from spiritual and temporal bondage, and 250 slaves of both sexes were baptized by their indulgent master. The kingdom of Sussex, which spread from the sea to the Thames, contained 7,000 families, 1,200 were ascribed to the Isle of Wight, and, if we multiply this vague computation, it may seem probable that England was cultivated by a million of servants, or villains, who were attached to the states of their arbitrary landlords. The indigent barbarians were often tempted to sell their children or themselves into perpetual and even foreign bondage. Yet the special exemptions, which were granted to national slaves, sufficiently declare that they were much less numerous than the strangers and captives who had lost their liberty, or changed their masters, by the accidents of war. When time and religion had mitigated the fierce spirits of the Anglo-Saxons, the laws encouraged the frequent practice of manumission, and their subjects of Welsh or Cambrian extraction assumed the respectable station of inferior freedmen, possessed of lands and entitled to the rights of civil society. Such gentle treatment might secure the allegiance of a fierce people who had been recently subdued on the confines of Wales and Cornwall. The sage Ena, the legislator of Wessex, united the two nations in the bands of domestic alliance, and four British lords of Somerset sire may be honorably distinguished in the court of a Saxon monarch. The independent Britons appear to have relapsed into the state of original barbarism from whence they had been imperfectly reclaimed. Separated by their enemies from the rest of mankind, they soon became an object of scandal and abhorrence to the Catholic world. Christianity was still professed in the mountains of Wales, but the rude schismatics, in the form of the clerical tonsure and in the day of the celebration of Easter, obstinately resisted the imperious mandates of the Roman pontiffs. The use of the Latin language was insensibly abolished, and the Britons were deprived of the arts and learning which Italy communicated to her Saxon proselytes. In Wales and Amorica, the Celtic tongue, the native idiom of the West, was preserved and propagated, and the bards, who had been the companions of the Druids, were still protected in the 16th century by the laws of Elizabeth. Their chief, a respectable officer of the courts of Pingorn, or Aberfraer, or Caermerthen, accompanied the king's servants to war. The monarchy of the Britons, which he sung in the front of battle, excited their courage and justified their depredations, and the songster claimed for his legitimate prize the fairest heifer of the spoil. His subordinate ministers, the masters and disciples of vocal and instrumental music, visited in their respective circuits the royal, the noble, and the plebeian houses, and the public poverty, almost exhausted by the clergy, was oppressed by the importunate demands of the bards. Their rank and merit were ascertained by solemn trials, and the strong belief of supernatural inspiration exalted the fancy of the poet and of his audience. The last retreats of Celtic freedom, the extreme territories of Gaul and Britain, were less adapted to agriculture than to pasturage, and the wealth of the Britons consisted in their flocks and herds, Milk and flesh were their ordinary food, and bread was sometimes esteemed, or rejected, as a foreign luxury. Liberty had peopled the mountains of Wales and the morasses of Amorica, but their populousness had been maliciously ascribed to the loose practice of polygamy, and the houses of these licentious barbarians had been supposed to contain ten wives and perhaps fifty children. Their disposition was rash and choleric, they were bold in action and in speech and, as they were ignorant of the arts of peace, they alternately indulged their passions in foreign and domestic war. The cavalry of Amorica, the spearmen of Gwent, and the archers of Merioneth were equally formidable, but their poverty could seldom procure either shields or helmets, and the inconvenient weight, which would have retarded the speed and agility of their desolatory operations. One of the greatest of the English monarchs was requested, to satisfy the curiosity of a Greek emperor concerning the state of Britain, and Henry the Second could assert from his personal experience that Wales was inhabited by a race of naked warriors who encountered without fear the defensive armor of their enemies. By the revolution of Britain, the limits of science as well as of empire were contracted. The dark cloud which had been cleared by the Phoenician discoveries and finally dispelled by the arms of Caesar again settled on the shores of the Atlantic, and a Roman province was again lost among the fabulous islands of the ocean. 150 years after the reign of Honorius, the gravest historian of the times describes the wonders of a remote isle, whose eastern and western parts are divided by an antique wall, the boundary of life and death, or more properly of truth and fiction. The east is a fair country, inhabited by a civilized people. The air is healthy, the waters are pure and plentiful, and the earth yields her regular and fruitful increase. In the west, beyond the wall, the air is infectious and mortal, the ground is covered with serpents, and this dreary solitude is the region of departed spirits, who are transported from the opposite shores in substantial boats and by living rowers. Some families of fishermen, the subjects of the Franks, are excused from tribute in consideration of the mysterious office which is performed by these charons of the ocean. Each in his turn is summoned, at the hour of midnight, to hear the voices and even the names of the ghosts. He is sensible of their weight, and feels himself impelled by an unknown but irresistible power. After this dream of fancy, we read with astonishment that the name of this island is Britia, that it lies in the ocean, against the mouth of the Rhine, and less than thirty miles from the continent, that it is possessed by three nations, the Frisians, the Angles, and the Britons and that some angles have appeared at Constantinople in the train of the French ambassadors. From these ambassadors Procopius might be informed of a singular, though not improbable adventure, which announces the spirit rather than the delicacy of an English heroine. She had been betrothed to Radiger, the king of the Varani, a tribe of Germans who touched the ocean and the Rhine, but the perfidious lover was tempted, by motives of policy to prefer his father's widow. The sister of Theodobert, King of the Franks, the forsaken Princess of the Angles, instead of bewailing, revenged her disgrace. Her warlike subjects are said to have be been ignorant of the use and even of the form of a horse, but she boldly sailed from Britain to the mouth of the Rhine with a fleet of four hundred ships and an army of one hundred thousand men. After the loss of a battle. the captive Radiger employed the mercy of his victorious bride, who generously pardoned his offence. Dismissed her rival and compelled the King of the Varney to discharge with honour and fidelity the duties of a husband. This gallant exploit appears to be the last naval enterprise of the Anglo-Saxons. The arts of navigation by which they had acquired the empire of Britain and of the sea was soon neglected by the indolent barbarians who supinely renounced all the commercial advantages of their insular situation. Seven independent kingdoms were agitated by perpetual discord and the British world was seldom connected either in peace or war with the nations of the continent. I have now accomplished the laborious narrative of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, from the fortunate age of Trajan and the Antonines to its total extinction in the West, about five centuries after the Christian era. At that unhappy period, the Saxons fiercely struggled with the natives for the possession of Britain, Gaul and Spain were divided between the powerful monarchies of the Franks and Visigoths, and the dependent kingdoms of the Suevi and Burgundians. Africa was exposed to the cruel persecution of the Vandals, and the savage insults of the Moors. Rome and Italy, as far as the banks of the Danube, were afflicted by an army of barbarian mercenaries, whose lawless tyranny was succeeded by the reign of Theodoric the Ostrogoth. All the subjects of the empire who, by the use of the Latin language, more particularly deserved the name and privileges of Romans, were oppressed by the disgrace and calamities of foreign conquest, and the victorious nations of Germany established a new system of manners and government in the western countries of Europe. The majesty of Rome was faintly represented by the princes of Constantinople, the feeble and imaginary successors of Augustus. Yet they continued to reign over the east, from the Danube to the Nile and Tigris, The Gothic and Vandal kingdoms of Italy and Africa were subverted by the arms of Justinian, and the history of the Greek emperors may still afford a long series of instructive lessons and interesting revolutions. End of chapter 38, part 5